Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Ram Aluwalia, co-founder and CEO of Lumina. Welcome back to Crypto Daily Briefing. Thanks for having me, Ash. Ram, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. A lot to talk about today, especially from the macro to the micro. Talking of which, let's do a temperature check on what's happening right now in price action. Bitcoin trading on my screen, 26,310. There's a lot of red. It's down on a trailing 24-hour basis, 3.7% on a trailing seven-day basis, off 1.8%. Ethereum trading below the 1,800 handle at 1,792, trailing 24-hour basis, off about three and a half percent trailing seven day basis more or less flat about uh minus 2.3 or minus excuse me 0.3 percent uh rom there's the background there's the context a lot happening right now we've got a lot of news flow on dcg and gemini we've got a lot of macro context to provide big picture where are we right now in these markets a lot to cover so overall market liquidity is receding. That's true in the crypto markets. It's also true in the capital markets. Uh, we're also seeing that inflation is remaining stubbornly high. There was a uh, quote in the PayPal earnings transcript that says, quote, across the world, inflation is stubbornly high. And so it looks like the, the easy wins of inflation around goods and services are behind us. And now we're heading into uh, a tougher road. Uh, and markets are trying to make sense of what lies ahead. The market still expects a Fed pivot. Uh, on the other hand, the most bid up sectors in the market include defensives like healthcare and utilities from a PE ratio basis. You've also got a bid on the AI narrative theme. Uh, yeah. And meanwhile, the VIX is at, is at 17. Yeah. There is that uh, mismatch there. Rum, let me ask you this, uh, this idea of re receding liquidity for folks who may not know the financial markets jargon, what does it mean? Why is it important in crypto markets? Sure, so there are different kinds of liquidity. So one form of liquidity is the ability to buy or sell a quantity of a digital currency or stock or bond. And what is the price impact from that? A highly liquid market, you can buy a large volume or quantity of a commodity or security or digital currency and not impact the price. Uh, and in the crypto market, one of the learnings from the Bitcoin Miami conference is that, and of course, in general, you're seeing this on Twitter as well, is that market liquidity has dropped dramatically. On that measure, uh, you're getting the price impact of $50 million buy sell that you would have seen uh, a year, year and a half ago on a 2 million market order today. So markets are much more sensitive uh, to market buy-sell orders. That's one measure of liquidity and other measures of liquidity include- I mean, that's 20, that's 20, 25 to one. That's a big shift. That's right. And a big driver of that, I contend, is the consequence of seeing Silvergate and Signature Send Network exit the market. We're now seeing the consequences of that. Market makers like Jump, it's been reported, 
uh, is also withdrawing their footprint from the market. And these are related, of course, because market makers, uh, although they're not directly regulated by the SEC, uh, they do have an obligation to adhere to uh, OFAC, meaning uh, any money laundering and uh, sanctions control regime. Uh, and banks played a role for them in uh, achieving that obligation. Yeah, I don't want to sort of so FUD here, but I want people to understand this concept of liquidity and the potential risk. And I think one of the sort of philosophical challenges to thinking about this is you can have uh, this sort of creation of a fragility in a market without seeing a massive downturn in price, but it makes it uh, a sets up a context or an environment or a market setup where the risk of that happening increases. That's right. That's right. And there's other factors at play here too. We have a handful of market makers that are remaining and their business is growing. I think that's one of the headline coming from these recent conferences. The folks that are left standing are taking share and they're doing well. Uh, you know, Galaxy's market making business is, is growing. Cumberland is taking share and, and players are trying to fill the gap from the demise of FTX. Another interesting takeaway is you know, FTX did play an important role in creating market liquidity, notwithstanding the issues around fraud and governance and other, other matters. Uh, and this is why you're seeing Coinbase look to develop an offshore perps market. And as you and your audience may know, perps are the primary traded instrument in crypto. It's a key source of market liquidity. There's a major gap in the market. Someone needs to go fill that. So it's another prong of the liquidity stool that's been missing. Yeah, we just had this conversation with uh, Paul Graywall, the chief legal officer at Coinbase, uh, I believe uh, Coinbase International headquartered down in Barbados. Right. Now, from a market's perspective, if you, if you zoom out from crypto, and I always think about crypto as the marginal liquidity market, meaning when there's new liquidity entering markets, crypto is a disproportionate beneficiary of that. And then when liquidity leaves markets more generally, crypto is disproportionately hurt from that. Um, you, you're seeing, of course, this the debt ceiling issue. One of the consequences of the debt ceiling is that the treasuries had to draw down on their TGA, essentially the, you know, the checking account at the at the Fed. And once we inevitably get past this debt ceiling, I don't have a view on what happens or doesn't happen, but at some point we're going to get past this. You're going to have to see the treasury issue a substantial amount of debt uh, to the market to replenish the coffers. The deficit right now is about $2 trillion per year. So within the next couple of months, certainly inside of six months, you should see a trillion dollars in debt issued. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because this is the opposite of quantitative easing, right? So when the Federal Reserve purchases bonds from the open market, they're adding liquidity, they're adding to bank reserves. When you have the issuance of bonds, you're selling bonds to the market, you're withdrawing liquidity from the market. And a trillion dollars is a, in six months is a significant number. Consider that the entire size of quantitative easing was $9 trillion. So the fact that the treasury does have to issue this, it, it creates an accelerant uh, of what we might experience around the eventual introduction of quantitative tightening or the acceleration of quantitative tightening more generally. So, so let's explain for folks uh, who may not know the importance and the impact of financial conditions, liquidity 
in the banking system uh, that traders have access to? Sure. So banks intermediate credit, uh, and when the money supply is going negative, then banks have less ability to to generate new loans, and we're seeing that in the hard data today. If you look at the most recent reporting, uh, month over month loan growth across banks, uh, more general credit growth as well as CRE credit growth has come to a still. Some of that likely is the consequence of the uh, March you know banking issues. So we have to see whether that's permanent or temporary. But liquidity finances assets. If you have access to liquidity, then you can purchase assets. So it's an important form of, of financing. So when liquidity is withdrawn from the system, then it's harder to execute or finance transactions. All things being equal, liquidity supports asset prices. All things being equal, liquidity supports asset prices. Uh, Ram, I know you've uh, just gotten back, I believe, from Austin, uh, Texas, and Miami, uh, that being shorthand uh, for uh, Coindesk consensus and Bitcoin 2023. What's the scuttlebutt? What's the feeling on the ground? What are folks talking about uh, when you go out to have a cocktail, not necessarily from the podium? So there, there are a few themes here. One is around the venture market, two is innovation, third is around Bitcoin ordinals and the, and the rise of, of Asia, the resurgence of Asia. Let me cycle through those briefly. So in the venture market, the theme is that there's still a lot of venture capital chasing a finite set of opportunities and valuations remain high they are coming in certain rounds particularly later rounds are experiencing locked markets for example like a series c de minimis transaction activity because founders don't want to get markdowns and perhaps the venture funds are trying to avoid that too it is flowing back to earlier rounds like seed but even so the valuations are still elevated to where you were post-financial crisis. You know, consider that Uber and Robinhood were valued in their seed round at four million, eight million, respectively, and now you're still seeing seed rounds at twenty to thirty million dollars. Not always with traction. So that's one. More pain to come in venture. Uh, the second theme within venture is this bet on the rise of Asia, and this is in part driven by regulatory. Uh, and also the roots of crypto. So of course, Singapore and Japan and Hong Kong are relaxing and creating frameworks for crypto. Uh, CZ reported on Twitter today that China state-run media had some discussion of, of crypto. I haven't looked at that closely myself, but that's it's quite interesting. Uh, and so a number of the top venture funds we've talked to are making a bet on the rise of that or resurgence of that customer segment. We are also hearing of entrepreneurs relocating or establishing their domicile in friendly regulatory jurisdictions, which is a which is incredibly unfortunate. So that's on the venture side. Now on the product innovation, a few themes: uh, tokenization, restaking is all the rage now, eigenlayer, and of course zk rollups. I'm also excited about. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Why don't you things. break that down and explain it for folks who don't have engineering backgrounds? Sure. Uh, I'll walk through that. So tokenization is listing an asset on chain. So unlike securitization, which is uh, opaque, uh, it can lead to illiquid markets. It almost ended the banks in, or unalived the banks in 2008. Blockchain gives us tokenization, which allows us to uh, list assets on chain with transparency, with standardization, and together that creates liquidity. So if you remember the scene, 
from the big short where Michael Burry is, is crawling on the floor trying to figure out the FICO score on a loan, looking at a dot matrix printer output. Now, the blockchain puts all that to bed. The blockchain creates real-world transparency. And it's, it's a surprising fact that in today's securitization markets or uh, private securitizations, which are a substantial portion of securitizations, you still do not have loan-level data. So my prior company, I started PIQ, we fixed that by providing data to different hedge funds, but it's not a, a public re requirement. So that's one. That's tokenization. You're seeing institutions like Wellington. Wellington is one of the largest global asset managers. Wellington's a big deal. Wellington is testing tokenization on AVAX subnets, as well as on other L2s, including Matic. And it's very interesting because the, the current approach on tokenization is this middle ground. It initially started as fully permissionless, and that didn't work for regulatory reasons. And there was also an approach on fully private permission networks, for example, like the R3 blockchain, which is created by a consortium of investment banks. Well, that didn't go anywhere. What's the point of that? It's another DTCC type database. And so now there's testing uh, of this By the way, by the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation, this is uh, the traditional uh, way that uh, US uh, uh, equities get cleared here in the United States, like 99% or so. so exactly right. So, so now we have this middle ground of testing tokenization on these uh, subnets, on AVAX and Matic. So I'm very excited about that. It would address the kinds of real world issues that banks have today with trying to liquefy their CRE debt uh, and sell off other securities in a, in a broader market. So CRE, by the way, for, for those who may not know, is commercial real estate uh, debt. This obviously is a big macro uh, point. We were just talking about this earlier in the micro context by the empty co-working space that you're coming to us from today. That's right, that's right. Now the, uh, yeah, I take a quick look here. I've got a lot of empty seats around me I'm trying to do my part to support the New York City commercial real estate market. It's a small part, someone's gotta do it. So ZK Rollups, another one, zero knowledge proofs. Now this is a uh, technology that allows, say an app uh, to uh, interrogate or query a smart contract and generate a result, say true or false, without revealing the private contents of the smart contract. For example, if it's a, Ron is a U.S. citizen, uh, and it returns true without revealing, you know, personal right. details. There's a lot In other of words, think about like proving that you know something without revealing what that thing is. The other general way that we uh, hear on L, uh, for the uh, Ethereum L2 networks is optimistic rollups, assuming that something is true until there's a challenge. All types of ways, essentially, trying to get uh, greater speed efficiency uh, and uh, cost savings on these networks so that you can do these things at scale. That's right. And think about the Equifax data breach from a few years ago. The fact that you have third parties that have access to private personal data that they're monetizing with our, without our permission that have clearly experienced security breaches. Can't think of a better use case. And of course, uh, applying ZK technology to healthcare data, which is begging for technical innovation as well. So this was the best idea from a co-founder of Consensus. And they estimate the market opportunity as substantial as trillion. So I'm very excited about it. I met with a uh, technical- but By the way, we should also say, I mean, other other folks are doing this. KKR uh, did an AVAX uh, tokenization uh, product. We were just talking about this with Rob Frasca earlier this week, uh, this idea uh, that these large financial services behemoths do not, do not want to be left behind. Uh, so they dip their toe in the water. You know, you, Rob, you and I know these kinds of folks uh, and, uh, 
you know, they obviously don't want to bet the farm on any one technology, but they want to they want to dip their foot in just so that they don't wake up one morning and find out uh, that their shop is a decade behind on technology. That's the that's the the rub here, and that why you see I think so much uh, of these little sort of little mini beta projects. They're not being done because they think they're going to make a ton of money on them. They're being done because they know that this is a, a potential future direction that the industry may head in, and nobody nobody wants to be left behind. 100%. That's another key theme, which is that the institutions are still here and they're still coming. And as you said, there are a number of these test projects out there. The KKR has inspired follow-on uh, projects as well. Uh, you know, Apollo, we know Christine Moy left JP Morgan. She uh, was leading the crypto group there. She's at Apollo now. Consider the various assets that Apollo has and the opportunity that they can uh, take advantage of with with tokenization. So I'm I'm very excited about real world assets on chain. It enables crypto to have a more relevant day-to-day -day impact to American capital markets and ordinary Americans, which helps set a positive vision and tone for crypto with Congress and the American public. Okay, speaking of institutions, I want to say first, uh, we checked Coinbase International headquartered in Bermuda. Uh, second, talking more broadly about institutions, something that I know that you're following very closely, Ram, uh, something that we've talked about here on this show a number of times, uh, is what's happening right now with DCG Genesis Gemini. This is a very large story in the market, uh, something that came up last week because there's a risk of a default here. Let's explain to folks who haven't been following this story closely because it is a complicated one and frankly, the names sound a lot alike and I think it's confusing to a lot of people. What's happening here, big picture, where are we 50,000 foot with DCG Genesis Gemini? Okay, let me introduce the, the cast of Shakespearean characters here and then <laughs> unpack the drama and what happens next year. So you've got Digital Currency Group, which is a blue chip storied institution, which has done something like $600 million plus in venture investments. Uh, and they have a number of wholly owned subsidiaries that includes Grayscale, the issuer of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, as well as other trusts linked to Ethereum and other tokens. Uh, and DCG uh, also spawned Genesis, which was the world's leading prime broker for crypto, meaning that they extend credit, provide trading services for institutions, high net worth individuals. So DCG, uh, in the run-up of the bull market, acquired $780 million of GPTC, which again was issued by their subsidiary Grayscale on leverage. That leverage was extended by Genesis, prime broker. Uh, and they were betting, presumably, on the GPTC discount, uh, narrowing closer to fair value because the GPTC as much like other closed-end funds generally trade at a discount to fair value. So they were, they were making this, a similar trade as 3Rs Capital was making. Unfortunately, spreads widened last year. 3Rs Capital had a margin call. They couldn't deliver. 3Rs Capital defaulted. That then led to Genesis defaulting over the summer of last year. Uh, and that created a $1.1 billion hole in the Genesis balance sheet. At that point in time, DCG had a game time decision to make. They could either let Genesis file for Chapter 11 because they would have been insolvent, or they could step into the breach and assume that defaulted loan obligation. They made decision number two. They assumed the $1.1 billion defaulted loan onto the DCG balance sheet, and they swapped that with 
a $1.1 billion loan to DCG on the Genesis balance sheet. To take a step back, what happened is Genesis had a hole, $1.1 billion hole. That hole, because of three years capital defaulted, was replaced with a good loan to DCG. So Genesis was made whole. Now, <clears throat> Genesis, after the FTX uh, unaliving, de fraud, demise, whatever you want to call that, uh, had to suspend withdrawals. And uh, Genesis ultimately uh, it filed for uh, Chapter 11 in January of this year. And now Genesis is going through a bankruptcy process. So it's a, it's a very complex situation. You have another uh, entity involved here, which is Gemini, of course, founded by the Winklevoss twins, another leading crypto exchange. And Gemini had created an earn product, uh, and that earn product delivered yield to retail accounts and high net worth investors. And the primary credit there uh, was Genesis. So, you know, you have, that's where we are now. And there are a set of, issues and conflicts at, at play here. First off, uh, on May 9th, 10th, and 11th, DCG had an obligation to pay approximately $620 million in debt due to its subsidiary Genesis. It did not meet those debt payments. That's one. That's, and we'll come back to that. DCG has now entered into a 30-day mediation period with its subsidiary Genesis, as well as the creditors of Genesis which include Gemini and also direct creditors to Genesis. That 30-day period should conclude in the next you know, one or two weeks, let's say. There may well be a cure period around these defaulted loans, meaning if you default on a loan, you have a, a cure period whereby you have an opportunity to make that payment as well. So a lot is coming to a head in the next one to two weeks. What's happened fundamentally is there's a lack of trust from the creditors to DCG. And that lack of trust stems in part because Genesis management allegedly, uh, current some of the current Genesis management, including the interim CEO, uh, signed off on allegedly uh, false balance sheet statements, statements, which induced creditors to either make a deposit or roll over their financing. So they're irate. And then second, there's no transparency into the DCG balance sheet. Now, DCG doesn't have an obligation to share that. So the game theory around this is like a, it's, it's, it's like a mutually assured pain. It's extremely unfortunate. And uh, I, I hope all parties can uh, arrive at a settlement uh, as opposed to having another legal proceeding open on DCG, which would delay recovery for Gemini earn, as well as the creditors, and reduce the uh, value of the pie. Because in the background, of course, Grayscale seeks to convert to an ETF. Grayscale is suing the SEC. And should that happen, and I hope that happens, we should all hope that happens, that would also at the same time reduce the revenue generating power of Grayscale, which hurts the ability of DCG to honor the $1.7 billion in debt that it owes to Genesis. So it's complicated. I'll pause there. Uh, one last thing I should add to this, Ash, to this drama is there's a tension between Gemini Earns. Gemini Earns about 350,000 creditors, again, primarily retail creditors, and the direct creditors to Genesis. Now, 
The Winklevoss twins, to their credit, did secure collateral to back up their loans in August. And so the Gemini Earn creditors are in a far stronger position. In fact, they may not need to rely on any kickers from DCG to be made whole. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. And so Let, the let's Gemini, break in and just to, yeah, and, and we're, talk, we're talking about that because I want to talk a little bit about the structure of what's going on, who all the players are. But first, Ram, I have to say, uh, you described that brilliantly. That's about as well as I've ever heard it described. Obviously, this is complicated. There are a lot of moving parts, uh, but you really framed all the issues that are in play, how the macro uh, in terms of the uh, fallout from FTX uh, and Terra Luna prior to that has had the impact on these companies and therefore the downstream effects that we're talking about here. But let's back up a little bit here and describe the general situation, uh, what's happening right now today in terms of who the players are, who the stakeholders are, what their risks are, uh, what their goals are. Uh, I read your note that you wrote earlier where you framed this very well, uh, where you talk about how the UCC, this is the uh, Unsecured Creditors Committee, has lost trust in DCG in your view. Let's talk about who all of those players are, what their outcomes are, as you say, the game theory, where they're trying to get with this, uh, and what the probability is of them getting there. So, so let's start with DCG, the key actor there, the Julius Caesar and the Shakespearean drama, drama is Barry Silbert. And his goal is to buy time because with enough time, the grayscale cash flow can help to fill the hole, but they need time. The reason they need time is because they have payments due yesterday weeks ago, $620 million, and Grayscale doesn't generate enough cash flow fast enough. They would love to refinance if they could, refinance their debt obligations, but Genesis, the creditor, doesn't have an interest in refinancing them. That's the game theory. And they can't get refinancing from a third party, presumably due to the overhang of litigation and alleged fraud that's in the backdrop. And of course, Barry doesn't want to take DCG into a default scenario. Uh, he wants time. That's his interest. He also- And the is, creditors don't seem to have a desire to push him into a default scenario in the short term, at least based on what we've seen, right? It's mixed. It's mixed. I've, I've talked to various creditors and you know, the Gemini Earn Group likes the deal on average. The, there was a term sheet uh, that uh, was exchanged a few months ago. They like that deal because they believe they would be made whole. However, the direct creditors to Genesis don't like that deal for hey, various reasons. Can you reasons. break that out yeah. for us? Can you explain yeah. those creditor classes? Because this is always uh, this is always the rub in understanding any, uh, I don't want to say bankruptcy situation, but any potential default situation is understanding the different creditors, uh, different creditor classes, how their interests align or don't align depending upon the structure of the deal. So there, there, there are actually four or five creditor classes. I'll focus on the two principal creditor classes. So the two principal creditor classes are the direct creditors to Genesis that have an unsecured claim. And this consists of something like 75 high net worth, ultra high net worth creditors to Genesis. And there's this, another class that is the Gemini Earn program and that Earn program consisting primarily of 340,000 retail investors is represented by Gemini as agent that claims about $1.1 billion or so. 
So they they have differing interests because Gemini secured collateral to protect against exactly the scenario a default. Now, does does Gemini have direct possession of that collateral? Excellent question. So on November 16th, a batch of that collateral was delivered to Gemini and Gemini foreclosed, which means they exercised their legal rights to possess and liquidate that collateral. And they sold that collateral, which consisted of GBTC on the open market, which led to a record widening of the discount. There is other collateral. Currently, by the way, for those who got keeping score at home, GBC discount uh, to net asset value around 42% right now. Right. And I think at its high, it was around 50% or so, right? Now, the there's another batch that's been pledged to Gemini. However, in the bankruptcy docket, that second batch, uh, it, the, the nature, it's it's disputed. It's disputed. In other words, DCG disputes that Gemini took commercially reasonable efforts to liquidate the GBTC. That's one. So it's complicated. Look, however, the term sheet that was proposed a few months ago addresses those questions and those disputes. However, the creditors have walked away from the, that, that term sheet. But I think the long and short of it is that my interpretation is that there's sufficient security that's been pledged to mm. Gemini. It doesn't matter whether they possess it or not. It's pledged. They can enforce upon that through a foreclosure process under law. It's nice if it's in their possession. They can look at the balance each day, et cetera. But it's legally pledged. In the same way, when you take out a mortgage out on your house, your house is the security for the bank. It doesn't matter that the bank doesn't have your house in their possession. So I know we're about to run out of time here, but I just want to get this final point in uh, here from your notes, which I think is important. Uh, the rescission and security agreement here. Uh, give us a quick uh, thumbnail definition of where we are sure. with that. There are two, so there are two reasons why Gemini is in a strong position. One security agreement, we discussed that. The second is rescission. So rescission is the penalty for offering an unregistered security to the public. And the case law shows that the penalty of rescission is making investors in those unregistered securities fully whole. So this is yet another advantage that Gemini earn creditors have because the SEC filed a suit claiming that the Gemini earn program consisted of unregistered securities. So Gemini earn creditors are in strong standing. And it's important for me to share that because I, I received DMs and messages from Gemini earn creditors that have experiencing a lot of distress, depression, mental health issues. By the way, I'm not offering financial advice, I'm not offering legal advice. Do your own research, but that I will. I, I, I'm very confident the Gemini Iron position is is strong. The direct creditor is a different story, and the big driver of that will be which FTX claims are deemed legitimate. I don't think all of them are deemed legitimate. That John Ray is turning over every rock. He's not applying cost benefit analysis. He doesn't have a legal obligation to do so. He's acting as fiduciary, and he submitted a number of claims and a legal process that unfolds over the next few months, we'll assess which claims are legitimate.
Ram, it's always great to have you on this show uh, today, especially lots of material to cover. Obviously, uh, everyone has a perspective on this. Uh, I'm sure there are people who would uh, disagree with some of these points, but to have you come in, frame it up and explain it to you, to uh, our audience the way you see it, incredibly valuable. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with from this conversation. Well, you know, looking out and looking ahead, the long-term opportunity for digital assets is here. We're seeing that in the innovation. We're seeing that in tokenization. We're seeing that in the ZK space. We're seeing that with the evolution of, of these chains and continued venture funding point into the sector. So it's a, it's a long and bumpy road, but the opportunity is promising. The sector needs to focus on a unified, positive message to Congress and the American public to tell a story around how this benefits ordinary Americans. Ram Alawalia, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Ash. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free, of course. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We'll be back again tomorrow with Oliver Lynch, CEO of Bittrex Global. Make sure to join us live. That's going to be an interesting show. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. in London. Thanks again for watching Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.